0: It's happening right over our heads. Thousands of satellites are being launched into low Earth orbits a few miles above the Earth's surface. An army of 5G satellites ready to beam down microwave signals to Earth stations constructed all over the world so we can stream movies or play music or order more stuff from Amazon. It's a brave new world in which outer space is the Wild West with corporate fortunes on the line. How will 100,000 satellites irradiating our atmosphere impact people, animals, trees, bees, or any other part of our natural environment? Who is monitoring this race into space? Once again, commerce seems to be getting out ahead of the science, but this time, the consequences could be truly catastrophic. Some experts think this is a national emergency. This is a story that needs to be told. And this is Green Street.
1: A few miles up in the sky, there's a race going on. And if you look really carefully at the right time, you can see it for yourself. Thousands of small satellites in low Earth orbit, circling the globe and transmitting signals back and forth to Earth. It's all part of a new frontier in communications, where, as some people believe, space is becoming just another platform for giant corporations to make lots of money and control how we live. Our program today is taken from a national Zoom call which we hosted last week in which several speakers talked about 5G satellites in space and today you'll hear a bit more of what they had to say. Our first speaker is Ben Levy. Ben is an engineer by training and with a 35-year career in computer consulting work with hundreds of clients worldwide in all aspects of hardware, software, training, and system design, networking, and relational database development. We asked Ben to provide a framework for our discussion. Here's Ben Levy. I've
2: been asked to introduce the 5G satellite issue, so I'm going to spend about 15 minutes uh, doing that. So here's a history, quick history of Earth satellites. Uh, The first Soviet Union launched the first satellite in 1957, and since then, there have been 8,400 satellites launched to date, and right now there's about 5,000 satellites in orbit right now, but 3,000 of them are operational and of course growing as SpaceX launches more and more satellites every month. So what there is, is there's a a network called the U.S. Space Surveillance Network that tries to track by radar all of the objects that are greater than four inches in diameter, and they've got over 13,000 of them that they're tracking. Then there's something called the Kessler Syndrome, which some of you probably have heard of, and that's this theoretical scenario where there's a cascading collision of one satellite, which creates more debris which crashes into other satellites creating more debris and it basically would render a whole orbit to be inoperable for literally generations until all the debris eventually falls into the atmosphere, which eventually it will and burn up. And uh, of course there's the issue of all that stuff in the atmosphere and what it might be doing to us as well. So what companies are actually planning is uh, non-geostationary orbit satellites. Constellations, and of course SpaceX is right up there at the top. They've had approval from the FCC for 12,000 satellites over a period of 15 years, and they've applied for 30,000 more. And the key is, is that every year they're going to be having some of those satellites drop into orbit and or into the atmosphere and burn up, and so they have to continually keep launching new satellites every year, which is why they need to apply for so many more. OneWeb, which has just uh, came out of bankruptcy uh, recently, has applied for 48,000. I think that's, uh, I'm not sure whether that's more vaporware or not, but that's what they've applied for anyway. Amazon has its Kuiper project, which has 3,236 that are authorized at about, you know, relatively very low Earth orbit, 366 to 391. Interestingly enough, one you probably haven't heard of, but Samsung is planning 4,600. Um, satellites orbiting at 900 miles up and then there's a number of ones that are already up there Kepler, Telesat, Russia has its own, Uh, China is starting to launch its own and then there's also a current sat phone system that utilizes the Iridium system that's been around since 1998. So some of you might even be watching this from a satellite internet connection Uh, if you don't have access to any other way of getting broadband internet, then satellite is really what you have, and what uh, SpaceX and others are doing are basically providing the next generation of these satellites, which are gonna be faster and uh, lower latency. So on the left is a picture uh, simulation of what the Starlink network is going to look like when it's fully um, mobilized on Earth. And as you can see, there isn't gonna be a place on Earth except for the poles that is gonna be not subject to this satellite radiation of some kind. And then on the right is a simulation of space debris from the ESA website, which attempts to track this kind of thing. And it just gives you a sense, obviously this isn't to scale. One of those pixels floating around is far, far, far bigger than the average satellite or even a thousand satellites. But you get the idea of all this, stuff that's out there circling the earth at any given time. There's an example of astronomical interference. We've been hearing about it but now there are pictures out that show what it is. This is a photo, a composite photo taken on July uh, 21st over a 32nd period of about 30 Starlink satellites and the Neowise comet. So again this is a composite. There's a time-lapse movie, there's a link to here and in a Google Doc, which we'll put in the chat later on, where you can see the actual uh, video taken of these satellites streaming by. But this is what the astronomers have to deal with on a regular basis with these satellites. There, And, and this is just a small amount of the satellites that are going to be launched. So let's just focus on the Starlink constellation, because that's the one we know most about. They're actually up there, and they're orbiting the Earth right now. And the purpose is basically to provide faster satellite internet to the premises, to a a building, to a home, to an office that cannot get internet through any other means, either through wireless or through fiber or copper. And it promises to be much higher speeds and much lower latency because the elevation of these satellites are so much lower than the current ones, which are at a geosynchronous orbit of 23,000 miles above the earth. And the uh the body of people that are interested in this is rather significant about 10% of the of the US population 34 million people are without access to fast internet. So this is one of the reasons why they decided to do this is because there's a market for it. Estimated cost is 10 billion dollars over 10 years. There's already uh, approved 12,000 satellites as I was saying and uh, SpaceX has applied for 30,000 more. And right now that application is sitting with the International uh, Telecommunications Union, ITU, which is kind of the overall responsibility for the whole planet to monitor what kind of satellites are and how many are floating around. SpaceX first launched its prototypes in 2018. The first 60 were launched just in May of last year And as of about uh, a week ago, there were 595 total in orbit. They've initially designed, I learn something new every day when I'm in this work, and I only thought that they were going to have 4,400 satellites when they were fully operational. And this is the Starlink network. Well, I found out that that's incorrect. In response to concerns about space debris, Uh, SpaceX requested lowering the orbits of its satellites to 550 kilometers or lower, very low orbit, and because of that, they're generating a second-generation satellite constellation, which is an additional 7,500 satellites. So just SpaceX alone is planning to have about 12,000 satellites in orbit when it's fully and um, in, deployed in a few years. And just as a context, that's 20 times the current number of SpaceX satellites currently in orbit. And these satellites are gonna talk to each other via laser because they can be able to see each other in orbit, so they're gonna be line of sight. And then they're gonna use about three or four bands of 5G frequencies from 10 gigahertz all the way up to like 40 gigahertz to communicate with Earth and the earth stations are going to be these user terminals and uh, and also these big gateway stations which are these large buildings with a whole bunch of dishes that are going to connect to the fiber optic terrestrial network and this is and uh, SpaceX originally asked for 1 million earth stations and they just recently about a week ago asked the FCC for permission to have 4 million more because they say that there's such a high demand. So they're gonna be putting out about five million of these uh, CP terminals, user terminals, and I think I've got a picture of it. So on the right is what a a terminal is gonna look like. It's gonna mount on your roof. There is already a beta testing open if you can go to starlink.com and stick in your email address. Uh, The coverage is gonna be northern United States, southern Canada. And right now, it covers uh, Washington, Idaho, Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, and Maine, and some lower por- upper portions of some of the lower states below that. You have to have a clear view of the northern sky. And the package includes one of these terminal dishes, a Wi-Fi router, and a pl- power supply. And basically, Musk says you just plug it in, aim it toward the north, It's gonna have a couple motors that will align it with certain satellite orbitals, and then uh, you basically sign a confidentiality agreement. They don't guarantee a connection in the beta test, but uh, there's a huge demand, as I was saying, they've already got over 700,000 people wanting to sign up for it. So here's a few links that I find very handy to have around. They're also gonna be in the Google Doc where you can access them easily. The first is called Celeste Track. It lets you visualize all the satellites in orbit. You can search for certain constellations. And you can even adjust it so that you can watch them orbiting. Uh, It's got a time-adjustable feature on it where you can see them quickly orbit or slow orbit. And it's quite an amazing site to have happen. There's a great site that I called. It's called See a Satellite Tonight. Uh, If you put in your address, it will show you where to look in the sky and at what time and what satellites to view. Quite an extraordinary little feat there, totally free, of course. Uh, The best ones, by the way, if you ever want to look at that, are the ones where you've got 20 or 30 of them at one time because they do go by relatively quickly. There's an excellent YouTube I just found called What SpaceX Is Doing About Starlink Space Debris. I recommend that if you're interested in that. Uh, the, uh, The link to the distribution of space debris around the earth, that uh, animated GIF that I showed you, there's a link to that in there. And then I also just want to invite you to consider if you want to support what it is that we're doing, and we'll talk about that later on in the uh, in the webinar. We can go, we have something called the Healthy Heavens Trust Initiative, and there's a link to that too. And with that, my presentation is over and I'll stop my sharing. Thanks very much.
1: You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and that was engineer Ben Levy talking about 5G satellites in space. Our next speaker is Joe Sandry, founder and CEO of Thought Delivery Systems. Joe has been an executive officer with multiple publicly traded corporations and serves on several boards in the technology and public service sectors. He's a member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, a long-standing board member of the National Spectrum Management Association, and serves on the board of the Archangel Ancient Tree Archive. Please join me in welcoming Joe Sandry.
3: So today I was asked to talk a little bit more about understanding satellite networks and their impacts. It, we, and Ben did a great job outlining a lot of the uh, satellite uh, mega constellations that are either in, in the air, being launched, or proposed, so I won't spend a lot of time on that. But what I wanted to do is uh, bring some attention to the actual types of orbits. So there's something called HEOs, MEOs, and LEOs, high-Earth orbiting, uh, medium-Earth orbiting, and low-Earth orbiting. And and Ben touched a little bit on that. The lunar orbit, you'll see to your right. That's where the moon is. And then a high-Earth orbiting satellite around uh, 30,000, 40,000 kilometers is where a, a large percentage of the satellite networks that folks are familiar with operate, as well as some MEOs, somewhere you know, between below 30-some thousand to about 2,000 kilometers. And a lot of those systems include the systems that we all rely on every day, the systems that work the timing in our telecommunications networks, the systems that follow uh, and direct missiles for national defense systems, and systems that operate our mapping, Google Maps, Waze, things like that. Those are, uh, most of them are tied to GPS. Or, uh, and this, uh, the United States, for years, was the only country that managed the GPS systems that the world used. That has changed. In June, the Chinese launched the system, uh, the final parts of a system called BeiDou which not only serves their commercial interests, but also the People's Liberation Army of the CCP, the the Chinese Communist Party. Um, Later this year, the European Union will finish launching a system called Galileo, which is also a GPS system. So there's competition, Uh, a lot of these countries uh, or uh, areas no longer rely upon only the United States. And therefore there'll be a whole variety of other aspects to that. The other thing is I wanted you to be aware of is when you look closely at the uh, LEO orbit, that's the one t- closest to the, the Earth. That's where SpaceX and Kuiper and Amazon and OneWeb and all these mega constellations want to launch. They're going to be tightly, tightly wrapped right close to the Earth. It's cheaper to launch close to the Earth. It's better communication connectivity. There's a lot of reasons for it but it also is gonna bring us to a point where there's an intense amount of congestion. We're already there. So uh, in terms of who's opposed or who's with certain satellite networks, uh, there's a variety of folks who are either opposed to satellite night sky pollution, like this famous or newly famous photographer, Casey Berry, who's been featured in in some uh, national and international articles. He's the photographer of the comet Neowise, which came, comes around every 6,000 years. He went to make his photographs, and they were all streaked uh, because the, uh, the, the Starlink network uh, was uh, destroying his his photographs. <laughs> um, so the quiet enjoyment to the night skies was 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 dramatically altered. Of course, Elon Musk and a lot of the CEOs are moving ahead with licensing and launching, and it's it's a it's a It's a grab, like a land grab, like the Oklahoma land rush, because it's easy for them to get licenses. It's easy for them to launch uh, enormous numbers of satellites. And there's no uh, actual process that is slowing it down to take the federal agencies of expertise in the areas of, let's say, night sky. Uh, uh, The FCC is not, the Federal Communications Commission in the United States is not a night sky expert. It's, and it, it has not gone to uh, and get, uh, gotten detailed peer-reviewed studies from the other federal agencies of expertise in those areas, uh, as well as fish and game and wildlife and others. Uh, I'll talk in a moment about the impacts on nature. Uh, of course, if you want to see the constellations from, from Earth uh, using your, your naked eye or using a telescope or an infrared system, that is already impacted and it's gonna get worse until, uh, if and until we have uh, a concentrated uh, gravity of of folks together uh, pushing on all their public representatives and in the courts. Uh, Here, I'm on the, as as Doug mentioned, uh, one of my uh, organizations that I'm on, I'm on the board of directors of the Archangel Ancient Tree Archive. We find the oldest and largest trees on planet Earth, and we get legal rights to take cuttings and to, to save them. We archive them and we reforest with them. We did a recent reforesting at the Presidio in California of some of the largest trees, not only ones that currently exist, but some that were chopped down over a hundred years ago, and we found living DNA in their stumps. Um, as part of that, we I spent a lot of time looking at the Aspects, the electrical aspects of living things, including trees. Every living thing, as a matter of biology 101, is an electrical unit. You and me are. Um, we all operate on spectrum channels, as do trees, and your a newborn child, or a, the plant out your window, or your pet. Um, trees have long been known, although it's well un, misunderstood or not understood by the general public. Uh, that they follow what's called projective geometry and precise 14-day solar system cycles. Uh, this was first pioneered by a scientist, Edward Lawrence. You could read uh, his his book, The Vortex of Life, Nature's Patterns in Space and Time. Now, I have yet to see any evidence that any of these uh, very sensitive aspects of nature have been studied and the impact of these very sensitive aspects of nature have been studied with the launch of these satellites that are tightly concentrically circled around close to earth um, again we don't even know what the the radio frequency exposure limit is for flowers or trees or people we don't know what spectrum bands a white oak operates on or a, a bush or you um, these are uh, irresponsibly understudied and the irresponsible lack, lack of curiosity by our federal agencies in these matters is is something of deep concern and again I'm somebody you know I sold licenses to AT&T that had my name on them that are operating 5G and I've sold uh, or been involved with either opposing or or studying satellite networks for a few decades and um, I'm deeply concerned at this point in time that we are not studying the impacts and the the teledensity of the networks that are being deployed for good reasons You know, the other aspect of this is we do need Internet uh, capabilities uh, for people. We don't want to deny them for people just based on their location on the planet. But we do need to have a much, much more uh, effectively studied uh, um, understanding of what the impacts are. This is ready-fire aim right now. It's not ready-aim-fire. In terms of catastrophic problems, satellites' uh, networks are not according to the evidence I've been able to locate, and no government agency has been able to show, show us, they're not insured against harmful impacts to human beings through uh, radio frequency exposure or other and certain other impacts. And they can, they're not insured as far as I'm aware uh, for against catastrophic failure. Catastrophic failures can occur through geomagnetic storms, what's called a coronal mass injection or a solar flare In 1859, a massive solar flare hit hit planet Earth. It set telegraph lines on fire. Paper on telegraph operators' desks burst into flame, networks went down. Um, There was a a miss by many miles of a solar flare uh, a decade or so ago, and it took out networks throughout North America, even though it didn't even hit planet Earth. So what does it mean if there's another solar flare? It hits our satellite systems, and we rely on them so tightly for our national defense, for our mapping, for our entire economy. Uh, and people are driving and, and, you know, in a variety of other aspects. So these are things I think the public needs to see some information about. Other things that can occur, there's known gravity disturbances over uh, Australia and other countries right now. Uh, there's a variety of man-made phenomena. What if uh, by mistake or on purpose due to war making or other, or terrorism, Um, missiles or satellite-based attacks, whether they're direct nuclear weapons or electromagnetic pulse weapons that derive from nuclear weapons, which can mimic a solar flare. Uh, Conventional explosives, shrapnel, uh, lasers can take out satellites, microwave, uh, uh, directed microwave systems, and limpet-type mines, which would attach to a satellite, can take out uh, satellites. Uh, There can be ground control sabotage where uh, through cyber or other uh, methods, the, the systems by which satellites are controlled could be disrupted, and just bad designs, bad control systems, and other systemic failures. There is a lot of language in the uh, in 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 the trade journals that uh, is pointing to that some of the satellite systems already deployed may not be performing as advertised. They may not be as maneuverable as they were told. Uh, we were told um, they may not be as uh, uh, camouflage as we were told in fact we were well aware that some of the SpaceX systems uh, are too bright and so they started painting them but then the paint attract the dark paint attracted heat from the Sun and that can fry electronics and then heat also uh, burns up infrared astronomy uh, equipment uh, in terms of being able to get a, a usable image and there's a variety of other concerns so uh, so why are we relying on these systems uh, so heavily, and why are we not studying them more carefully before we become reliant on them? And of course, why aren't we asking all our federal uh, agencies of, expert, uh, of expertise to, to provide comprehensive studies that are subject to public com- notice and comment? And we should, uh, either through the Balance Group uh, or some of our uh, sister organizations, we should start uh, building a much larger uh, group of concerned citizens to, to, to advocate on all these areas is, is my, my opinion.
1: You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our speaker was Joe Sandry, founder and CEO of Thought Delivery Systems. Our final speaker today is Julian Gressering. Julian is an international attorney, professional negotiator, inventor, recognized expert on East Asia. He was twice the Mitsubishi Visiting Professor at Harvard Law School and a visiting professor in the MIT program on science, technology, and society. He has advised many international companies on legal and business issues involving. Japan and China, and he's currently chairman of Alliances, a nonprofit organization that is implementing the public-private model with a new field of exploration called Big Heart Intelligence. Here is Julian Gresser.
4: We are at a historic, I believe, heroic moment. And the first and most basic question I would ask is, when and how will we awake from the consensus trance I believe we're in? Consensus Trance comes out of the anthropological literature, best illustrated when Captain Cook sailed his boat into Botany Bay and the local indigenous people there didn't see a huge man of war anchored right in the harbor. They went about their evening meals and so forth. How come it was so outside their experience, they failed to see it. They had a negative hallucination. However, when he put down a rowboat they had canoes and they could relate to it. I submit this is what we are what is happening with this phenomenon that um, Ben and Joe have introduced that that engages the entire world and most of the world is utterly unaware of it. The consensus trend says it can't be happening so you buy into my version of blindness and we collectively don't see that which is actually happening before our eyes. The most important point I believe to come up bring across tonight is that timing is critical. What is at stake? It's hard to believe that the FCC and particularly five FC commissioners may be strongly influencing, if not determining the fate of the earth. As Joe said, their mode of operation is ready, fire, aim. There's little, if any, enforcement going on of the regulations that they do have with respect to satellites. It really mirrors what's happening and how they're approaching the whole 5G dilemma at the national and at the local levels. The stakes could not be higher. What I want to suggest for my contribution tonight, is a very practical mode of action by which we can address these problems, we, in the United States, in collaboration with groups and concerned citizens, organizations around the world, enlisting the support of their governments as well. Okay. Now, this is a chart that shows the array of problems. And I can't list and take your time tonight to go over all of them only to say we have very serious, unassessed health effects, both not only from the radiation of this clusters, clusters of satellites, but particularly these huge base stations, and then the millions of Earth stations. There are significant environmental effects, uh, bird migration, bee colony collapses, uh, insect decimation, Uh, all coming out of this profound insight that Joe suggested that all living creatures are essentially transceivers. There are privacy uh, effects because we're really creating a wireless global satellite-based infrastructure which raises issues of personal privacy as well as government surveillance on a global level. There are issues of collisions, of debris, which will as Joe and and Ben have suggested, could have cascading catastrophic effects. There are issues of interference with scientific research with weather uh, prediction um, and astronomical inquiry. So this is a profound array of potential. The key word is unaddressed, largely unaddressed and unassessed harms all of which, at least potential harms, can connect with one another. So you can think there is a aggregate, cumulative, negative, synergistic possibility here, which neither the FCC, these five commissioners, or anybody has really looked at. And yet, as you've seen tonight, this program is rapidly moving forward at an increasingly accelerating pace. Now, it's important Lawyers, which I am one, look, are interested in economics. We, we, at some law schools, we get training in economics. And here I want to give you in just two minutes at the economics of the present situation in a nutshell. The point of departure for this discussion is the 1972 OECD polluter pays principle, which basically is sound welfare economics that the cost of of industrial commercial activities that is externalized to the public should, from a rational economic system, be internalized to the company. They should take account of it and make rational decisions, which under the economic model will benefit all of society. What is happening here in the satellite and the 5G area is the opposite of it. Instead of the polluter pays principle, we have the public pays principle. So, what does that mean? Particularly in the satellite area, the uh, satellite companies are asking for massive direct subsidies from taxpayers. Your dollars are going to pay uh, Elon Musk and OneWeb, in the case of the British government, for the benefit of their shareholders. Now, clearly, they're arguing this is of great public benefit, but it's important to understand direct subsidies. As well as a ratepayer of subsidies, these two points have been brought out in the regulators, the FCC case, a very important landmark decision. The third point, way in which uh, the industry is being subsidized is through regulation. This is not generally understood by non-economists, but basically. Uh, allowing permissive non-regulation is a subsidy, which is exactly what's happening on terrestrially and in, and particularly in the satellite program, because these costs, the industry, the companies, are not being asked to, to absorb any of these costs. And there's no victim compensation system as there is for toxic torts with a Superfund and so forth. It's all on the public, and as Joe very importantly said, there's no system indemnification, there's no insurance. What company law- launches a product without any insurance? Can you imagine? Okay, so what we put together is a very practical, on the ground laser strategy, uh, which we believe can affect a shift, a rebalancing of what's going on that will offer hope. So, as any case in controversy, you have to begin with what, what is the other side's position? The FCC's position and claim is that it has regulatory authority and is bet for the space program. As best we can understand, it's predicated on, the, uh, on a provision in the Telecommunications Act 1996, which suggests that it has control over the provision of t- uh, satellite-based services services, the provision of the service, and it's predicated on the FCC's control over the frequencies. It's important to understand this in terms of as we are developing this legal case. The FCC defines its mandate, which really m- many of the government agencies do, as a, is to support industry, the telecom industry. There's nothing sort of in, intrinsically evil about that. It's just how they define their mission. Now, what we're doing in this uh, Healthy Heavens Trust, we are required, I should say, by administrative law in the United States, you can't just sort of soar into into a court. You have to be able to show a record in which you presented your concerns to the agency, listen to their response, and if it is not adequate, then you have to go, you can use that as a basis to then bring a judicial action. So what we are saying I think very succinctly is, look, the FCC must follow established international and federal and state laws and procedures. There, it's not as though that we're operating in a legal no-man's land. There is a body, a very substantial body of international convention of treaties that relate to outer space, that relate to the law of the sea, that relate to international environmental concerns, that relate to privacy. It's as though none of this matters in terms of where we are now. So that is the basic point. Moreover, there's a body of federal law, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, as well as other laws. And that we, this is our fundamental position. Now there are other stakeholders we'll explore in a second who also have concerns and can weigh in. And the important point here is to not view the situation as though we're all facing a a monolith. The federal government is not monolithic. As Joe suggested, there are many agencies who have deep concerns about their jurisdictions and missions being encroached upon, and the strategy I will lay out for you will address that. Okay, so what we're going to do, and in the process now, and we're quite well along, is to prepare what is called a petition for expedited rulemaking. And I come back to the key word, expedited. The fundamental challenge we're going to present to the FCC and these five commissioners is to lay out the international legal regime that has already been established. I mean, Joe discussed and others about collisions, about debris. I mean, who's liable for that? Who's going to take, who's going to be responsible for that? It's not as though nobody's addressed that issue, but very peculiarly, I mean, I must say it's almost something out of Alice in Wonderland. The FCC has taken the position under the Liability Convention that the United States will not be responsible for the damage and collisions that is a curve that is being permitted because the FCC is not a statutory agency. It's a regulatory agency. So what they're basically saying is that we don't have jurisdiction. We don't have the power. We're just a regulator. We don't have congressional authority. And yet they're doing it. This is a very casuistic position. Anyway, under the U.S. federal laws, we have some very good a precedent pioneered by NRDC in the famous United Ketola Band of Cherokee Ch- Ch- Indian case, and most recently all the, mid- all the basic argument uh, has been well argued by the Environmental Health Trust and Children's Health Defense in its recent filing with the FCC, which applies even more powerfully uh, in the satellite area. We're basically saying the, the entire program is a major federal action, that the Administrative Procedure Act requires a thorough assessment, not only of the risks of this major federal action, but also a really diligent exploration of alternatives, which we'll come come to shortly. The last point is this issue of national security. And this is one of the key points that I think has not been missed, because beyond this being a health issue and environmental issue, under the Secure 5G and Beyond Act of 2020, which President Trump signed on March 23rd, the United States government is aware of the vulnerability of a wireless wireless-based uh, uh, satellite infrastructure, um, and this act has mandate mandates the federal government, led by the FCC, to look at the vulnerability and to provide the president with a, an assessment of the risks uh, within 180 days. Now we're getting near that, and we don't see any evidence of a deep, thoughtful uh, exploration, nor nor a active engagement of the public, which is clearly stated in the law. The important point I wanna bring out is that this is not just simply a matter of national US security. And as was well uh, uh, explained in uh, my colleague, Tim Shockley's declaration in our challenge in March to the approval of a million earth stations to SpaceX, he points out that a wireless-based satellite infrastructure is extremely dangerous and vulnerable to attack. And Joe hinted on some of the aspects, either by intent or by natural consequence, it's vulnerable. And this is not only a matter of U.S. national security, but international security, because the risks, as we have laid out in that diagram, apply to every country on this earth. And other national laws have a lot to say about this argument. For example, in Italy, if you have you deprive the night sky of its dark brilliance, this is a violation of the Italian law of against light pollution. Similarly in Spain, similarly in other countries. We're not just talking about violations of US law, we're talking about the actions of five commissioners whose consequences will raise serious legal questions in 50, 100 other countries around the world. Uh, Now, in addition to the legal aspects, we believe there's a better process by which the FCC can go about doing this. And we are developing a kind of an innovation to bring all the federal governments together to engage the international decision-making organizations. Joe mentioned the International Telecommunications Union and many others, or UN agencies. Through a a set of interrogatories that focus on each one of these uh, agencies' deep concerns to help them understand and awaken them out of this consensus trance that their jurisdictions and missions are gravely affected. Take the Department of Agriculture. Suppose US agriculture becomes endangered. Shouldn't the Department of Agriculture have a say at the the launch and deployment of these satellites? Okay, so we are going to engage through our very focused petition, which becomes a very powerful statement, all these other key decision makers at the international level, at the national level, and to encourage the US government to open an intergovernmental consultative process uh, with other governments, which they haven't done to date. Now, an important point as I start to reach my conclusion is under the National Environmental Policy Act and the APA, as well as under international law, there's a you can read these conventions to, as part of a protection of the public trust in the heavens, uh, the mandate to approach this sacred trust in a disciplined, thoughtful way. You can read a strong responsibility for the United States as a fiduciary to examine viable alternatives. Viable alternatives. None of this has been done. It's as though... Uh, the only thing that matters is the agenda of the of the space of the satellite companies in point of fact <clears throat> there is a viable alternative this is the main point i want to bring out the viable alternative as been suggested by others already today is the existing terrestrial optical fiber infrastructure and what has not been understood is that there are over 750,000 miles of in already installed optical fiber ocean infrastructure, which constitutes actually the most actually the, the backbone of our present internet. It comes out of the sea. Now this technology dating 20, 30 years ago is even into the 19th century when the first cable was laid down is stable, it's proven, it's less risky, it's energy efficient. <clears throat> so as opposed to the opposite, of what is the uh, satellite technology that Elon Musk and the other, others are promoting. No doubt this is the engineering genius that they have in mind, but it's unstable, it's unproven. You, ben mentioned uh, one web collapsed in bankruptcy, just, just came out of it. It's very risky and it's energy inefficient. There is a lot of uh, research going on now of safer wireless. So if we are, there are some communities that just have to have wireless, Let's give them at least safer wireless with full disclosure and key word of informed consent, because who are we to say, if some families want to have accept the risks informed about the consent. It's their, it's their decision ultimately. And finally to have ongoing international subsidized research for safe solutions, such as DARPA itself is already, we're well aware coming up with. So here's a pathway toward uh, a, an effective solution. The FCC itself has confessed that it it doesn't have expertise in these areas. Okay, fair enough. That chart that you remember, environmental harms, health health risks, even privacy issues, maybe they have some on that, but all collisions in space and all of this, they don't have the expertise. Okay, it's not a grievous fault, they don't have it. What, what we're proposing as part of the petition for rulemaking is we've already well along the way to create in what we call the 5G international legal action network, a brain trust of some of the brightest lawyers, scientists, engineers, economists, so forth, all over the world. And we will provide them as part of our petition for rulemaking. and our interrogatories, we can provide the FCC and other parts of the federal government with a template, and we will actually write the key, let's call it the key elements of the rulemaking that we are asking them to adapt. And our fundamental request is that there be a pause. A pause, a moratorium, that's what we will be requesting, and we believe that we will get an expedited review by the federal courts because of the national security uh, risks of what is going on. If the FCC said, no, we're gonna go on business as usual, then we will point out the palpable and immediate risks to national and international security. And we will go to the federal court, the, the DC Circuit, and see following the Kinaweetaw and other cases that they will remand it. And we will then work with the FCC to adopt the rules uh, and rulemaking that we will propose and co create with the private sector and with the other elements of the federal government.
1: You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our last speaker was Julian Gresser, an attorney and organizer of the Healthy Heavens Trust Initiative, which you can find on the internet at resiliencemultiplier.com. That's all one word, resiliencemultiplier.com. There you can find out more information about Julian and his efforts to bring some logic and sense to this, what seems like madness in the sky. This program uh, today was excerpted from a Zoom call we sponsored last week, and you can watch the whole video and see the charts and graphs at our Facebook page, which is Americans for Responsible Technology. That's on Facebook, Americans for Responsible Technology. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be well, be safe, enjoy the last few weeks of summer.